Our lesson today comes from Jude, beginning in verse 3. Here again, God's Word. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the coming day, as Sodom and Gomorrah, and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. And there ends our reading. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your Word. We pray that you would speak to us now through your Word. As it has been read, as it is preached. Father, we pray that you would speak to us with power. That we would not be ashamed of your Gospel. We would not be ashamed of your truth. But that we would contend for it earnestly. As Jude calls us to. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving us a, a light in the darkness, for giving us a lamp to our path. May we walk in it faithfully. This we pray, giving you thanks and praise in Christ's name. Amen. Athanasius uh, is a name you might be familiar with. We recite his creed every year on Trinity Sunday. Uh, Athanasius was the 4th century bishop of Alexandria in Egypt. But his time in office was not without controversy. Athanasius insisted that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. That in Jesus and in Jesus alone, heaven and earth have come together. He is the God-man, God with us, God among us. And therefore, Athanasius argued claims that the Roman emperor was God on earth, claims that the Roman emperor was a divinized man, had to be false. Those claims had to be rejected. As a result of Athanasius standing for this truth, he was exiled by four different Roman emperors five different times. Uh, it was not easy for him. But in the end, Athanasius prevailed. Uh, the Nicene Creed was upheld, and the Romans stopped thinking of their emperors as divine. Athanasius contended for the faith against enemies outside the church, and he prevailed. Martin Luther is a name I know is familiar to you. Martin Luther was a 16th century monk uh, who saw all kinds of moral and especially doctrinal corruption inside of the church. And as he grew in his understanding of Scripture, he began to challenge this moral and doctrinal 
corruption. He contended for the faith. He contended for the truth of the gospel. And Martin Luther also prevailed, bringing about the massive reformation of the church in the 16th century. Jude commands us to contend for the faith. He introduces this as the theme of his short letter there in verse 4. But it's interesting, he, he tells the original audience, he says, this is not the letter that I set out to write. It was not his intention to write this kind of letter initially. His original intention was to write a letter about our common salvation and how wonderful it would have been. I'm sure if we could have had that letter, no doubt that would have been a very joyful letter, a very comforting letter, a letter full of encouragement, a letter about salvation. Our common salvation, all believers in Christ share the same salvation. We have the same salvation in common. Jude wanted to expound on that glorious truth of the gospel. But something happened and he had to write a different kind of letter. And so instead of writing about our common salvation, he wrote about the danger of falling away. Instead of writing about salvation, he writes about apostasy. Instead of writing about our common salvation, he writes about falling away from salvation, missing salvation, because one doesn't persevere in the faith. False teaching arose and led many astray. Many were compromising uh, in their belief and in their way of life, distorting the grace of God, even turning the grace of God into a license for sin and immorality. Jude sees this happening and he feels compelled to address it. And he does so by calling on them and now us to contend. This letter is a call to arms. It is a call to fight, a call to stand firm. It's a call to contend for the faith. It's a call to fight the good fight. It's a call to take up the battle for God's truth in our own lives and in the church and in the world around us. It's a command to contend where there is contention. That is to say, wherever the Christian faith is under attack, Jude says, contend, fight for it, defend it, proclaim it, spread it, guard it. This is the treasure entrusted to you. Contend for it. It's interesting. A lot of scholars have noted uh, all kinds of connection between 2 Peter, so the Apostle Peter, his second letter, uh, and Jude. A lot of connections there, a lot of overlap. Uh, There's quite a bit of commonality between them. And it seems that this is what's happening. Whereas 2 Peter... In 2 Peter, Peter prophesies that false teachers will arise and mislead many in the church. Many will be led astray. Jude says, now it's happening. Now the false teachers are here. Now we see this compromise with the world taking place. He says, in fact, in verse uh, 4, he says, certain men have crept in, ungodly men, who turn the grace of God into licentiousness, And thus deny the only God and our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the problem. Peter prophesied it. Jude says now it's happening. And so in verse 5, Jude warns them with a reminder from history. He says, the Lord saved a people out of Egypt, but afterward destroyed those who did not persevere, those who didn't persevere in the faith. This is, of course, referring to the story of the Exodus and what happened afterwards. These are the Israelites who were rescued out of slavery in Egypt. 
by God's mighty hand and outstretched arm. They were led out of Egypt through God's representative Moses, led out of slavery. They were going to journey to the promised land, but many of them perished in the wilderness because of their unbelief. That generation of Israelites did not contend. And so they fell into idolatry and immorality. They did not contend, and so they compromised. Jude doesn't want that to happen to these believers. He does not want a repeat of that wandering in the wilderness episode. And so Jude calls these believers to take a stand. To stand on God's truth. To stand for God's truth. To draw lines where God's word draws lines. To believe and practice what God's word teaches. To reject those things rejected by God's word. Jude's not writing a politically correct letter. Uh, Even in his own day, before political correctness as we know it existed, this would have been a hard ladder to hear, a hard ladder to take. In a sense, Jude is saying the Christian faith is not for the faint of heart. Jude is calling on believers to fight for truth using the truth. To fight for truth with truth. Of course, to contend for the faith, to contend for the truth, we have to know what we believe and why. So there's certainly that issue. And of course, you could also say, to contend for the faith, uh, we have to be courageous. It takes courage to contend for the faith. It's not easy to contend. In fact, this word, to contend, this verb, to contend, it comes from the gladiatorial games. It's the kind of word that would be used when a, a, a gladiator was put out into the middle of the Colosseum, and he would have to do battle with another warrior or perhaps with a wild animal. He would contend with another fighter or contend with a wild beast. That's the word that Jude uses here. That's the background. That's the kind of battle Jude wants us to see. This is a life and death struggle for the truth. Now, some might say, aren't we supposed to love each other? All this talk about fighting and contending. Why? Aren't we just supposed to love one another and get along? Let's just love one another and leave it at that. Well, what would you say? You know, today, if you, if you take a stand on some issue, contention, if you uh, have firm convictions in various er, er, you know, areas, uh, you will be accused of being unloving. But look at how Jude addresses them. Go back to verse 3. Jude addresses them as beloved. Uh, He calls these believers to contend, not because he lacks love, but because he is full of love. He says, beloved, contend for the faith. I love you, therefore I want you to contend for the faith. And really that makes a lot of sense. We know that if we really love somebody... We want what's best for them. If you love someone, you want what's best for them. And so you will warn them when they are in danger. You will point them to those things that will lead to their flourishing, to their thriving. Even if that means having to say some hard things to them. We do this as parents with our children. We know sometimes we have to correct our children, discipline them, tell them things that are hard for them to hear. But we do it in love. We know we have to do this in the community of the church. Sometimes saying things to one another that are hard to hear. Jude calls on us to contend because he cares. It's not the absence of love, but the fullness of love. It's not the absence of love, but the presence of love that leads Jude to speak this way. If we care, we will contend. 
We will point others to God's truth, even when it's difficult or unpopular, because we know embracing God's truth and living out God's truth is the pathway to human flourishing. There's no other way to thrive as creatures made in God's image unless we embrace God's truth and live in terms of it. He addresses them in verse 3 as beloved. He says again in verse 17, beloved. He says it yet again in verse 20, beloved. This letter is filled with love. Love, true love, biblical love, the kind of love God calls us to, is not some undefined, shallow, sentimental feeling. It's not mere tolerance. No, the kind of love we're called to, love at its best, certainly it includes feelings of affection, But love is fundamentally treating others according to God's law from the heart. In other words, love cannot be separated from the truth. Love and truth go together. Love speaks the truth. Love acts on the truth. And as Jude shows us here, love contends for the truth. A love that is indifferent to the truth, a love that won't contend For the truth is not really love. Love does a lot of things then that might seem pretty unloving in the eyes of those who don't really understand love. You see this with Jesus. You know, how many, how many things Jesus does that aren't really Christ-like in a way? Because they don't, they don't fulfill the expectations we have. We think, oh, Jesus is love. And so that means he's going to always be nice and tolerant and peaceful. And the next thing you know, he's flipping over tables in the temple and grabbing a whip. Or he's insulting the Pharisees, saying, you bag of snakes, who told you you weren't going to hell? That's Jesus. That's love. Sometimes love acts that way. Sometimes love talks that way. Sometimes love flips over tables in the temple. Sometimes love gets angry and in your face and tells you what you need to hear, even if you don't want to hear it. So Jude writes a love letter that says, fight. Jude, in love, calls us to fight, to fight for truth, because that's the loving thing to do. Love loves the truth. Love contends and love defends the truth. Love wants people to embrace the truth. And so Jude, out of love, says he found it necessary to write this letter, like he felt pressure to write this letter. He was compelled to write this letter. It was necessary for him. It's interesting, when Jude says in verse 4, I found it necessary to write you this kind of exhortation, not what I originally intended to write, but rather this kind of letter, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith. It's the same word, that word necessity, it's the same word Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 9.16 when he says, necessity is laid upon me. Woe if I do not preach the gospel. Necessity is laid upon me. We picture Paul bearing this heavy burden, knowing he's got to preach the gospel no matter how much opposition it brings, whether they throw him in prison or give him 40 lashes minus one, whatever the case might be, necessity is laid upon him. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul knew what he had to do. And so it is with Jude. He knew what he had to do. Perhaps there was some reluctance on his part, but he knew it was necessary. He had to write this letter of warning to the people. Because that's what good shepherds do with the sheep. If there's a wolf nearby, they'll warn the sheep and move the sheep out of 
harm's way. It's what Ezekiel, uh, it's what God told the prophet Ezekiel to do, to warn the people of Israel. God said to Ezekiel, I have appointed you as a watchman. Wherever you hear a word from my mouth, whenever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them. That's what it means to be a watchman or a shepherd over the flock. Or again, think of Paul, the apostle in uh, Ephesians, uh, in, in Acts chapter 20, as he's wrapping up his ministry in Ephesus. He says to the people, he says to the gathered elders, he says, I have declared to you the whole counsel of God. He says, I have held back nothing that would have been useful for you to hear. As if Paul is defending all the hard things he had to say to them. I held back nothing that would be useful or profitable for you to hear. I warned you day and night, even with tears. So we are to contend. We are to be contenders. But what do we contend for? Well, Jude says we are to contend for the faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints. We are fighting for the faith. And the way Jude speaks of it here, you can see the faith as a defined body of truth. It's objective truth. Down in verse 17, Jude describes it as those words spoken by the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's apostolic truth. It's the doctrine of the apostles. That's what we are contending for. And in fact, all throughout the New Testament, you find this. The New Testament emphasizes again and again the importance of contending for this truth, this faith. So in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul writes to Pastor Timothy. Timothy's a pastor of a, of a church. And Paul writes to him saying, guard what has been entrusted to you. Well, that guarding, that's really contending. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, he says, Hold fast to the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in the true, in, in the faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. He says, That treasure which was committed to you, guard by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Paul says, Hold fast to this pattern of teaching. These sound words that you've been given. You've been given this treasure. What is the treasure? It's the truth. It's God's very truth. You've been given this treasure guarded. Guarded by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. This truth you've been given is a treasure. Guard it and fight for it accordingly. Proclaim it and protect it. That's your calling as a pastor. What Paul calls on a pastor to fight for... In First and Second Timothy, Jude commands the whole congregation to fight for, in his letter, to fight for the faith. The faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Jude says this faith has been delivered once and for all to the saints. You know, Jude might be the very last book of the New Testament written. Certainly one of the last, if not the last. And so at this point, Jude can say, the faith... The faith of the apostles, the teaching of the apostles, has been delivered to the church once and for all. This is one of those great uh, passages that is used to show that the canon of Scripture is complete and closed. There's no new revelation being given. We're not supposed to seek out some new revelation from God to supplement the Scripture. We've got everything we need right here. God has said... What he wants to say to us right here in the scriptures. God has said what needs to be said right here for all of history. God's truth is deposited in his word. And so Muhammad doesn't get to add to it. 
Uh, Joseph Smith doesn't get to add to it. Uh, Pentecostals don't get to add to it. The Pope can't add to it. You don't get to add to it. I don't get to add to it. We're not adding to the faith. We're contending for the faith that has been delivered to us once and for all. And that's interesting too. It's an interesting way of speaking when he says this faith has been delivered. This faith is not discovered by man. This faith is delivered by God. It's not discovered by man as he makes some kind of ascent to God. Rather, it's delivered by God to man as he comes to us. It is God's truth. It is his revelation. He has delivered it to us. This book, the scripture, this is not men giving their bright ideas about God. This is not men giving their own ideas and and, and reflecting on their own experiences of the divine. This book is not man's thoughts about God at all. It's not like this is man's loftiest and noblest uh, explorations of the deity. No, this book, the scripture, this is God revealing himself and his purposes to us. He has come down from heaven to earth in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has revealed himself to us. And he has given a book, some of it written before he came, some of it very shortly after he came. He has given us a book to testify to Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's done, what God's purposes are for the creation, how they come to fulfillment in Jesus, how all of God's promises are fulfilled in him. The promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. This is what has been delivered to us. God's truth. This truth has been delivered to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So the very words of this book are the words of God to us. That is an amazing thing, isn't it? That God has delivered His truth to us. He has preserved His truth for us. In other words, to contend for what is taught in this Word, to contend for what is taught in the Scripture, in this book, is to contend for the very truth of God. That's what Jude wants us to see. This faith delivered once and for all to the saints. Now, Jude wants the church to be filled with contenders, with defenders of this once and for all revelation. What does that mean for us today? Certainly, we have to be ready to contend for all of God's truth, for the whole faith, for what the Apostle Paul called the whole counsel of God. But we especially have to contend for those truths that are under contention. And so what is that? Where does the battle rage most fiercely today? Here's another way to ask that question. Those who are seeking to contend for the faith, those who are seeking to uphold God's truth, where do we get most criticized? Where does the church get most attacked? Where is the church under the most pressure to compromise? What aspects of the faith are being assaulted? What are Christians most likely to be mocked for today or even persecuted for teaching today? Well, interestingly, I think the answer for us is the same as it was for Christians in Jude's day. After saying in verse 4, contend earnestly for the faith, and then warning them what will happen if they don't in verse 5, 
What does he go on to focus on? What is the point of contention? Well, verses 6 and 7 tell you. And in verses 6 and 7, the focus is on sexual sin. Particularly the kind of sexual sin that was found in Sodom and Gomorrah. Jude describes them as those who have given themselves over to sexual immorality. In our era, as in many other eras of history, it is God's sexual design. God's design for our sexuality, you might say, that is under contention. This is what most draws out the world's hatred. And understand, if if you contend for God's truth, in all those other places, except for where it is most under attack, then you are not really contending for God's truth. You have to be willing to contend for God's truth in those very places where the battle rages most fiercely. And so we must not flinch in this arena of sexual ethics. This is where our loyalty to God is being tested. Because this is what the world simply will not tolerate in our day. And so, if you say men are men, women are women, uh, sex belongs only in marriage, marriage by definition is the union of one man and one woman, if you say that men and women are equally made in the image of God, equally redeemed in Christ, and yet different from one another, men and women have different glories, different roles, different callings suited to their differences of nature. You say those kinds of things. What is going to happen? Those things will get you hated by the world today. You'll be considered a sinner in the world's eyes. You'll be considered a bigot in the world's eyes. And let me tell you, the world does not forgive these kinds of sins. There will be a price to pay. And so Jude is saying to the Christians of his day, and he's saying to, to us as Christians in our day, will you contend for these truths? Are you willing to hold positions that are not socially respectable? That your social peers will think not only foolish, but evil? On this issue, the reality is you will either face God's wrath or the world's wrath. Now, Jude would say it's much better to please God than the world. You can't please God and the world. So, which will you choose? Jude is saying, choose to please God, not the world. I'll confess, this may not be the battle we want to fight. This may not be the battle we want to have. Uh, But, you know, sometimes the battle chooses you. This seems to be what was happening in Jude's day. I think it's happening in our day as well. And understand, the point of of showing you this is not so we can go win some so-called culture war. Uh, the, The point's not to go get certain people elected or something like that. The point is very simple. The point is to be faithful to our God. To do what what Jude says to do here. To contend for the faith. To disciple this nation as the Great Commission requires. Now look, our teaching on these things, our teaching cannot be disconnected from the Gospel. 
Uh, our teaching on sexual ethics can't be disconnected from what Scripture teaches about the forgiveness of sins or about the new life that we're given by God's Holy Spirit. So we've always proclaimed those things too. We are all sinners. We are all in need of forgiveness. There's no room for pride or arrogance as we contend for the truth because we know we are desperate wretches in need of God's grace uh, just as everybody is. But I also want you to understand this. Certainly we should be kind and loving towards everyone. And we've talked about this before. How do we deal with people who take different positions on these issues or live a lifestyle that we cannot approve of? We've talked about the need to be kind and loving in those situations, kind and loving towards everyone, even towards those people we are contending against, maybe especially towards those people we are contending against. But this is what I want you to keep in mind. Kindness will not make the offensiveness of the truth go away. Sometimes I think we have this idea as Christians, oh, if we're just kind enough, then they'll listen to us and they'll be persuaded. And the reality is it just doesn't work that way. Don't think that if you are just winsome enough that you can avoid the world's slander and accusation. I would tell you to be winsome, be kind, loving, be winsome as you contend for these truths. Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. But do not think that your winsomeness means that you won't ever have to suffer for these same truths. I mean, just to give you an example of this in the last week, I found this very interesting, and I know there's probably a lot more of the story to come out, so I was somewhat reluctant to talk about it, but I'll mention it anyway. Uh, I think we've seen this in the last week with what's happened with Chick-fil-A. Now, they're a chicken sandwich, you, know, ch- you know, they sell chicken sandwiches, okay? So in one sense, it really shouldn't be that big a deal. Chick-fil-A is not the church, so we don't have the same expectations uh, of Chick-fil-A that we do the church. But they did profess to be a Christian business governed by Christian principles with a Christian mission. And we've seen for about the last seven years or so how after they came out in you know, favor of, of a biblical definition of marriage, their leadership did, and they've supported different kinds of ministries that have defended that truth in various ways, they have been continually and relentlessly attacked by the gay rights movement in particular. And now what's happened in the last week, it looks like, again, there may be more to this story to come out, so let's not jump completely to final conclusions, but it looks like their leadership has decided to stop contending on this particular point. In other words, it looks like they surrender in a way. Now again, Chick-fil-A is not the church, but their shift is something of a bellwether. It shows you how powerful those forces are that we are up against on these issues. And so this is what's happened, as I understand, in the last week. In response to their progressive critics that uh, said that by supporting ministries like the Salvation Army and Fellowship of Christian Athletes, that uh, Chick-fil-A has been funding hate. Because those are organizations that believe marriage is defined as one man and one woman. And so they have shifted their philanthropic support from ministries that uphold biblical marriage to at least one that is affirming of the gay lifestyle. And so organizations like Salvation Army and Fellowship of Christian Athletes are getting dropped. It was interesting in the last week, a a Wall Street Journal editorial on this 
uh, pointed out that not only will Chick-fil-A's reversal on this issue make the gay rights movement even bolder in the future, but it also implies that those ministries that do continue to seek to uphold the biblical definition of marriage really are bigoted. In other words, the critics really have been right all along. I don't know how far you want to take that. I mean, again, we're talking about Chick-fil-A, a big company. It's not the church. Okay. But that's how this action's being interpreted, and I think there may very well be some truth in that. I, I feel like our situation is that of uh, Elrond in Lord of the Rings, when he says our list of allies grows thin. It does, indeed. Uh, and I think we have to say further, I want to add this point as well, I'm not at all convinced that these concessions that Chick-fil-A is making so they can break into new markets and what have you are really going to satisfy the progressives who have opposed them all along. In fact, if anything, I think by giving in to these demands, they're just going to face more demands that they give up even more ground because that's how mobs work. That's how this kind of thing works. So we need to be aware of what's going on. There are some things we're being asked to believe by the progressive culture today that are downright ludicrous, really. Uh, this is what the whole transgender movement is about. Now, again, I'm not talking about how we treat somebody who suffers from gender dysphoria. That's a separate issue. We always treat people with kindness and with love. But just think about the way the issue is being imposed on our society. The transgender movement, at its heart, is a denial of the most basic biological facts of how God made us. Our culture is asking us to live by lies. To say that a man can become a woman, or a woman can become a man. It really reminds me of Orwell's 1984, uh, when one of the inner party members wants to test Winston Smith's allegiance to the party. And so he holds up four fingers, and he says to Winston, how many fingers am I holding up? And and, and, and Winston uh, says four, but he insists that the answer must be five. He insists that Smith say he's holding up five fingers, even though he's only holding up four. Because the whole point is to test his loyalty, his allegiance to the party. Will he allow loyalty to the party to override what he knows to be true? You have to say and do what the party says, no matter how irrational or obviously wrong it is. Well, that's the kind of situation we're in. Saying boys can use the girls' restroom or locker room. Uh, that's like demanding we see five fingers when only four are being held up. It's unnatural. It's unbiblical. It's unscientific. It's irrational. It's a lie. And we must not participate in lies. In contending for the faith in our day, we are really contending for reality. We are advocating for a way of life that is in tune with the way things are. We're advocating for a way of life in harmony with God's design in the created order. Now, if we want to be heard, we must befriend people, we must love people, we must be patient, winsome, all those things I talked about. But we do all of those things as a way of contending for the faith. There is a fight. There is a battle. There's no getting around that. And there is an offense. There's no getting around the offensiveness of some of the things that God's Word teaches. See, understand, when we confess what the Bible teaches about male and female, about sex and marriage, against our modern day Sodom and Gomorrah, we are blaspheming the new God. 
And this is why it is such a point of contention. We are contending for the faith once and for all delivered by the Lord. But the world is contending for its faith. Faith really, I think you could say, in the God of the self, ultimately. And in this new faith, desire trumps design. That's what the world says, really. My desires define me. My desires give me an identity. I am my desires. In the faith once delivered, we are who God says we are. My identity is a gift from the Creator outside of me. And I'm to live in terms of that identity. But in this new faith, in the world's faith, I am who I say I am. I am who my desires tell me I am. And that's really the issue here. Are we theonomous creatures made by God, accountable to Him, under His law, called to live according to His design? Or are we autonomous gods, self-made, self-defining, a law unto ourselves, defined by our own desires? Does your identity come from outside, from God above? Or from your, from the inside, from your desires within. That's really the fundamental issue. In the new faith, feelings are the authority. Instead of sola scriptura, it's sola sensum. It's the authority of one's feelings, the cult of feelings. I feel, therefore I am. I am who I feel I am. Feelings define reality. It's feelings over facts. Desires define reality. It's the religion of me. It's the worship of the self. That is what we are contending against. But I bet we would also find that God of the self lurking somewhere within each one of our hearts. This contending for the faith is not just something that takes place out in the culture, in the workplace, or in politics. It does happen in all those places. But this contending for the faith starts in your own heart. Where each one of us have idols to uproot, ultimately the idol of the self. But we need to understand, as we do this, as we do this, there are powerful forces at work. And I know some Christians who are very scared, uh, who are very concerned. They see a totalitarian worldview that's starting to uh, have all kinds of influence over government and the university and media and the arts. And how can we stand up to this? How can we stop this? There's so much momentum behind it. But you know what? The good news is we're on God's side. Uh, We are on God's side if we contend for the faith once delivered. And that means reality is on our side. That means the whole creation really is on our side. And that means that truth, God's truth, the truth we're seeking to contend for, the truth, again, is found right here. In God's word, this truth is going to ultimately prevail. And so what does Jude say to us? What did he say in the first century? What did he say to us in the 21st century? The message is the same. It's always the same. The issues may change, but the, 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 the command is always the same. Contend for the faith. Wherever that faith is challenged, wherever it's under contention, contend for God's truth. And doing so knowing this faith includes a promise of assurance, a promise of victory for those who stay faithful. Recognize that our culture is full of sexual confusion and rebellion right now, but that world out there full of uh, of confusion and rebellion, that's our mission field. And who are we to begrudge the mission field God has given to us? That's the nation, that's the culture that Jesus says, go disciple, 
Go baptize that culture. Go baptize that nation, nation, teaching them everything I've commanded to you. That's the field ripe unto harvesting. But if we're going to harvest it, we're going to have to contend. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this truth you've given to us once and for all in your word. This faith delivered to us through Jesus, through your prophets, through your apostles. May we contend for this truth in our own lives against indwelling sin, our own idols, the idols that lurk inside our own hearts. May we also contend for this faith in the church when we see the church going astray and compromised. May we contend for this faith in the world. May we contend against the idols of the day, against the spirit of the age. Give us courage and strength. Make us winsome and kind and loving as we do this. But help us to not have a failure of nerve. Uh, Father, give us the courage we need to do this faithfully. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.